One thing that keeps coming up in the topics that we've covered so far is the question of food and relatedly agriculture. It may be easy to underestimate how central food is to a lot of what's going on even right now. So we discussed the emergence of new diseases drawing on the works of Rob Wallace and Mike Davis to talk about how industrial livestock production under capitalism which then is international or global capitalism you know centers of power new york hong kong london investing in places like china indonesia malaysia so on and so forth how all of that is tied in with the emergence of new diseases last week yogen pile spoke about transnational corporations that's one of the many things that he mentioned and how transnational corporations which is another way of saying international or global capital introduce fast foods to low and middle income countries or the global south which has been leading to obesity overweightedness and that is related to non-communicable diseases like heart disease or diabetes because we now have a pretty good idea that these things are linked to processed foods foods that are industrially produced and therefore as a consequence are often high in sugar high in salt and high in trans fats so why is it so easy to underestimate the centrality of food and agriculture at least for those of us who may be listening to this it has a lot to do with where you are situated privilege basically there's a pretty well established relationship in economics a pattern that as your income increases the proportion of your income that you spend on food decreases that does not mean that your consumption of food decreases what it means is just that as a percentage of your overall income you're spending less on food and if that's the case then you don't have to think so much about food and the other part of it is if we're urban if we're not involved in agriculture ourselves and remember that a plurality that is maybe about 40% of pakistanis are still involved in agriculture in one way or another so a huge chunk of our population maybe more than any other industry is involved in agriculture and so these questions are actually very central to what's happening in third world countries now this relationship that i've described about incomes and food there's a pretty curious phenomenon that you can observe in pakistan and india and perhaps other countries i haven't really checked and this is happening over the last maybe 30 years which is that as per capita income have increased and and per capita means that if you take the total something in a country and you divide it by the total population so you're looking at something per person that means it's per capita so per capita income the total income of the country divided by the population of the country as that has increased the per capita calorie intake has decreased has gone down so it seems like at least in some ways it appears that people are getting less food in india and pakistan even though their incomes are increasing and that this is happening over the last maybe 30 years in these countries suggests that it has something to do with neoliberalism if you remember neoliberalism partly has to do with overturning state intervention in the economy and prior to these years the state was very much involved in the economy as a consequence of following some of the prescriptions of John Maynard Keynes or Keynesian economics which suggests that the state has a role to play in the economy and neoliberalism does away with that 
or at least this is the kind of argument that Dr. Utsapatnaik will make. If you remember what Utsapatnaik was talking about in our last discussion, she was talking about how this kind of thing happened under colonialism, where food availability went down sharply from when we started measuring in 1900 to the 1930s. Now, I don't know if per capita incomes went up under colonialism. I don't think they did because GDP growth appears to have been stagnant. But one of the reasons for this kind of decline in per capita food availability, as Dr. Patnaik told us, was that more and more land was being diverted for the use of the foreigners, the Firangis, the colonizers. And the proportion doesn't even have to be very large for it to have a severe impact on consumption or demand deflation, domestic consumption or domestic demand declines. And it translated into people here not eating all that much food, or at least not as much as they could potentially have gotten. So colonialism was a threat to our food security. But we know that food availability on the whole increased after colonialism ended, but not evenly, not necessarily in a way that was great for everybody. So it's important not to romanticize that. But nevertheless, now food availability appears to be going back down. So is something similar happening now as what happened under colonialism? Is this a consequence of these market-oriented free trade neoliberal policies? Or is the decline in calories a consequence of some other phenomenon, some other thing going on? Is it something to be worried about? And if so, what is it? tell us about how we conceive of the relationship between poverty and food security if income is going up but what you're eating is not. Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we talk about the relationship between politics and economics and how political economy can mean a lot more than just politics and economics. It can also mean food. We talk to scholars using different perspectives and approaches to get at some of these questions. I'm your host, Noman Ali, Assistant Professor of Political Economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. To discuss the relationship between declining food availability and estimating poverty, we're joined by Dr. Utsa Patnaik, who is retired from the Jawaharlal Nehru University, or JNU, in India. Dr. Patnaik has had a very long career in agrarian studies and in colonial economic history. She's well known in India on the subject of poverty estimation because of her debates on the subject with Nobel Prize winner Angus Deaton, or rather he went on to win the, the prize later, and uh, his collaborator Jean Drez, who's also collaborated with Amartya Sen. Some of Dr. Patnaik's essays on food security were published in her book Republic of Hunger and Other Essays. The question of food security and poverty also comes up in a more systematic way in her more recent book, A Theory of Imperialism, which she co-authored with her spouse, Prabhat Patnaik. This, by the way, is the second part of a two-part podcast. It's really worth listening to the first one to get at the dynamics of some of what we're discussing. So let's hear from Dr. Utsa Patnaik. In the 50 years before independence, food trains availability has fallen from 200 kilograms per capita annual. In around 1900, it had fallen to only 137 kilograms per capita by 1946. That was a 
worst year for the whole of British India, inclusive of India, Pakistan, everything. 137 kilograms in 1946, and that is a level that not even uh, least developed countries have today. It is lower than that, you know. So quite apart from the famine in Bengal, over the entire subcontinent, there was a tremendous hunger, okay. By the beginning of the 1990s, this had been raised from this uh, terrible low to around 183-84 kilograms, which was a major achievement, you know, as far as food security goes. But then all this started to be reversed with the inception of neoliberal policies. Now, if we won't have time to go into why the earlier policies of expansionism, of cornering off from the global economy as long as your own needs were not satisfied, all that got reversed from the early 90s in India and probably from even earlier in Pakistan under the pressure of global finance capital, uh, which all these policies probably you're familiar with, they come in a baggage now which are termed neoliberal economic policies which actually replicate colonial conditions, because there are two pillars. One is that governments are told, you cannot have fiscal deficits, you have to cut back on public spending. And many governments have been forced to legislate that. They have a law. And India also passed such a, such a completely misconceived uh, uh, legislation, uh, the Fiscal Responsibility and Budget Management Act uh, was notified, I think, in uh, 2004 about 16 years ago, uh, as law. I mean, that is loss of sovereignty. Why should any sovereign government listen to the IMF or the World Bank, which tells them you can't spend more? We are not indebted, okay? We haven't taken any loan which carries loan conditionalities. It is now operating purely through ideology. That is, the elites in our countries have been completely brainwashed into becoming subservient to the agenda of global capital. And they are following fiscal deflationism, fiscal contraction, on the basis of completely wrong economic theory, which is having a very bad impact on the employment situation and the income generation situation in our countries. And the other pillar has been free trade. Again and again, we have been told, all developing countries, that you have to open up to free trade you will benefit from free trade, which is again complete nonsense, because you benefit from free trade if you negotiate uh, in, uh, with Ricardian assumptions that all countries can produce all goods. But if it is one-sided, if the advanced countries want access to your agriculture because they can't produce most of the goods on which they are dependent today, then this kind of one-sided trade, one-sided dependence makes for a situation where your own food security goes down because you are now you know, devoting more and more of your own resources to filling the supermarket shelves in advanced countries, in the US, in Germany, in Britain, and so on, with goods they can't produce. And remember, that also includes the, the goods they can produce, but which they can't produce in winter. Mm. So it's not only tropical goods, it's also temperate land goods that they want. The problem now is, from the 1970s onwards, uh, the range of commodities that advanced industrial countries want from us, and which they brainwash our elites into thinking that 
it'll be very good for us if we supply them, which is not true at all. The range of commodities has increased compared to colonial times. And this again, we point out in our book, that at least in the colonial period, before independence, we were protected by the fact that air freighting was very expensive and everything had to travel by sea. Even if you went through the Suez Canal, a ship from Mumbai to or Karachi to Britain would take three weeks. If you went to America, it would take even longer, crossing the Atlantic, six weeks. But now, with air freighting becoming so cheap, you could have commodities from Pakistan, from Bangladesh, from India, from, uh, you know, uh, and even from China reaching uh, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, Boston in a matter of 16 hours in less than a day, uh, taking the North Pole route. And uh, of course, the North African countries, the tropical African countries are even nearer to Europe. They're just a hop away. And they're within six or eight hours air freighting from the US. So the transnational food corporations had now, uh, which grew during the 1970s and 80s, they were not there. When I was a student in Britain, uh, in the late 60s, uh, there were hardly any supermarkets. They had only just started. Uh, you still had neighborhood grocery shops, you know. But these uh, transnational uh, co corporations which deal in agribusiness, and they're located in the north, they deal all over the world, they really expanded furiously from the late 1970s onwards in particular. And they have expanded extended their tentacles into all developing countries in order to gain access to our superior primary productive resources. And people are uh, worried. Uh, people are surprised when I, say, when I say this, that this is a bad thing. They say, why? You're earning foreign exchange. What is wrong with this kind of division of labor? Let them uh, you know, specialize in food grains. That's the only thing they can produce. Uh, lots of wheat, potatoes, dairy products. So what is wrong if they export that to us and we export what we do best, tropical products? Uh, this is what um, is good. No, because you see, what it means is that you become dependent for your basic food consumption and large countries can't afford to do that on advanced industrial countries. So they're not bothered about your food security. They have pressurized you. Uh, through the WTO, through direct pressure through the IMF and World Bank, direct pressure exercised by advanced country governments to say, give up your protective measures on trade, open up, uh, give up quantitative restrictions, reduce your tariffs, engage in free trade, and this, this will be good for you. And, you know, dozens of smaller developing countries were forced to do precisely that. Even to this day, they are attacking the policies of food grains procurement, food stocking, and distribution that we have. I don't know Pakistan, whether Pakistan still operates such a uh, policy. In our country, this uh, the public distribution system, which procures grain and other commodities, but primarily grain from farmers. And the primary grain producing region is North India, uh, Punjab, Haryana, Uttar Pradesh, and so on. It procures grain from farmers at a minimum support price to ensure, which is 
which ensures that even if the global price becomes very low, the farmers don't suffer. They can sell to the government at this price, at a minimum price. And then it provides a subsidy, uh, which is mainly for transporting grain from the grain surplus areas to the more remote grain deficit areas, which are, for example, Kerala, Northeast India, Jammu and Kashmir, and so on, you know, which are uh, food grains deficit. So the food subsidy is provided out of the uh, central government budget, and it is a subsidy to ensure that uh, areas which specialize in non-food grains crops do not suffer from high food grain prices, that you have more or less equalization uh, because it meets the storage and transport cost of this kind of um, regional specialization within a large country. And China operates a similar system. So this is the right of every sovereign large country to ensure that there is food security within its territory, territorial borders. Why should it listen to other countries telling it what to do? Why should it give up its domestic food procurement and distribution? And it is being attacked continuously since the Doha round of negotiations started in the WTO, as you know. And what is the objective there? The objective there for the advanced countries is that they have a completely rigid output vector, a completely rigid primary sector output vector. They simply cannot produce, even if they wish to, a high range of commodities that the rich populations, on average rich, of course there are poor in America as well, but on average much richer populations, they become habituated, habituated to consuming a very large range of commodities that they cannot produce, starting from your tea and your coffee sweetened with cane sugar in the morning to your uh, practically everything, the cotton for the textiles that you wear, uh, the jute for the various kinds of packaging you use that is being increasingly substituted by synthetic packaging, but it is still being used for you know land reclamation and all kinds of other things. So there's a huge range of products and now to that they have added fresh fruit, vegetables, and flowers in winter, which they cannot produce, which are now being sourced from tropical and subtropical regions of the world through their uh, food business corporations. So they want us to give up our own food security system to buy their surplus food grains and to devote more and more of our land to what they want, which is exactly what they were doing in the colonial period. Now, the problem with that is that once you do that, then you became, become dependent on the advanced countries. A number of countries which did that in the, all through the 1980s um, and 1990s, they gave up their food procurement and distribution. When I went for a seminar to the Philippines in 1997, just three years earlier, they had been forced by the US to give up their public rice procurement and distribution system. And just the previous year, there had been massive flooding and the rice production had fallen massively and they had no stocks. So the rice uh, price had doubled within the Philippines. Many other developing countries in Southeast Asia and in Africa were forced under continuous pressure to give up their domestic food grains produ production, uh, procurement and distribution systems. And in any case, their food grains production per capita also was going down. Similarly, in India, once it started adopting neoliberal policies, free trade, uh, which as I've told you, the two main pillars of free trade, increasingly 
producing for the global market and domestic fiscal contraction. Once it started doing that from the early 1990s, with Manmohan Singh as finance minister uh, in, from, the, uh, from 1991 onwards, we have also experienced, and this is the danger I pointed to as early as December 1992, in a paper I wrote, I said, this is very dangerous, opening up to the global market, because you will find that the suction of the global, of the demand of advanced country population will again restructure our cropping pattern away from the food grains, our own population needs towards what they require for filling their supermarket share. And that is what has happened. The per capita food grains production and availability in India went into a free form. Mind you, another interesting thing is that even a country like China, which had no debt conditionality, but which followed market-oriented policies, which engaged with the U.S. market in a very big way from the 1980s onwards, and its export drive was mainly based on textiles, you know. So it devoted more and more land to cotton and other commercial crops less and less to its own food grains, that China too experienced a fall in per capita food grains production. So not only smaller countries, even large countries like ours, India is very large compared to Pakistan. China is very large, but even our countries have been, as it were, uh, our uh, countries have been conned, I would say, sort of confidence trick has been played on us by being told you will benefit from opening up to the global market. And it has worked because our elites have benefited, but the masses have suffered. They have suffered very, very badly through reduction in their living standards, reduction in their basic consumption standards. All right. Today, if I look at the per capita consumption of grain, as I've told you, this is the major source of energy intake and protein intake for the average Indian. The per capita grain consumption in India today, or not today, the latest data I've looked at is for 2011. The situation now is worse than that, is no better actually. Uh, FAO has come out with more recent data which I'm analyzing but I haven't completed the analysis. So India's, as of 2011, India's per capita absorption of uh, cereals, not even food grain, leaving out pulses, was the lowest in the world. It was the lowest in the world if you take use of cereal for all purposes, because cereals are not only used for direct consumptions. Uh, a part of the cereals in, uh, you know, if you have advanced dairy farming, you actually uh, uh, is fed to animals like cattle. That is what corned beef ret uh, refers to. Cattle which have fed cereals to help them gain weight rapidly. So a part of it is fed to animals, a part is processed, you know, things like cornflakes and uh, so on, that urban people eat more than rural people do. A uh, part is used for industrial purposes, commercial starch and so on, right? So you take all uses of cereals. The per capita consumption in India was 176 kilograms in 2011 compared to 212 kilograms for Africa, average for Africa. And, sorry, 212 kilograms for uh, the least developed countries. So we are way below the least developed countries. It's 225 kilograms for Africa. 
330 kilograms for China, around 500 kilograms for European countries, and more than 1,000 kilograms from the USA. Please look at this simple indicator for Pakistan. You can get it from the FAO data, you can get it from your government data. What is the per capita consumption of cereals, that is the total output, that is output taking account of trade, you know, what is the domestic supply of cereals divided by the domestic population? Even a school child can do that calculation. What is it today in Pakistan compared to what it was 10 years ago? Has it gone down? I, if it I, has I've... gone down, it means the nutritional standard of your population has gone down. By the way, Pakistan was better off than India in 2011. Its consumption was higher than India. We are a very big country with a very large tribal population, which is abysmally poor. Okay, so we, are, we were actually worse off than Pakistan and we are worse off than even Bangladesh. Well, I haven't done the exact calculations, but I know uh, that the caloric intake in Pakistan has decreased over the last 20 years. And, and there you are. Yeah. There you are. If it has decreased, it means poverty has increased. You know. Let's talk about that, the question of whether or not poverty is increasing or decreasing, because uh, although you're arguing that declining uh, calorie intake or declining food availability suggests that poverty is increasing or living standards are decreasing, rather, but there's plenty of people who would disagree with you. There's the, uh, you've had a, a debate with Angus Deaton and Jean Dres who are arguing that no, something else is happening. Uh, so um, can you tell us a little bit about that? I had a debate with Angus Deaton and uh, Jean Dres. They have written together a number of articles because Deaton was doing a big project on Indian poverty. So he has written a lot on poverty measurement in India and what the poverty percentage is and so on. And of course, this debate was some years before he got the Nobel Prize for his. So they were actually saying that since I've been writing for 20 years about the danger of falling nutrition because per capita calorie, calorie intake has been falling in India, protein intake has been falling, they were saying, no, 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 this simply reflects diversification of diets. When a country gets better off, then people don't want to eat as much cereals as before. They're simply diversifying to non-cereal foods, uh, to you know, animal products and so on. Now, <coughs> since uh, uh, you would talk to Pakistani students, I think uh, I will also make this debate available to you. Because again, there's a very simple fallacy underlying their argument. And I counted, I actually explained the fallacy in my rebuttal of their argument saying that, look, if you have diversification of diets, then far from the per capita demand for cereals going down, the per capita demand for cereals actually goes up. Why does it go up? Because cereals are not just used directly for food. Uh, for example, in Pakistan and India, you would make uh, chapatis uh, roti out of uh, wheat, you would boil rice and so on. That is direct use. Cereals are also used indirectly as animal feed, particularly in developed countries. If you look at the US, the US, they were comparing US direct consumption, which was some 102 kilograms per capita, with Indian direct consumption, which was 152. And they say, see, the US has a more diversified diet and they consume less cereals. So I pointed out, no, 
the U.S. consumes 600 uh, kilograms of uh, cereals per capita compared to India's 152 direct consumption. Uh, uh, sorry, 176 direct plus indirect. Why? Well, the U.S. consumes 100-odd kilograms per capita directly as bread and so on, but it consumes 40 times the animal products that India consumes per capita by converting 500 kilograms of cereals to at least 100 kilograms uh, per capita uh, animal products like milk, eggs, uh, meat, and so on. So I don't know whether the fallacy is clear to you. You know, so, they were actually saying that Indian population is diversifying diets and therefore uh, that's why it's, um, it is consuming less cereals. If it was diversifying diets, every country in the world which, is, which has a higher income has a higher uh, per capita consumption of cereals for both direct and uh, cereals for both food as well as feed taken together. The highest in the world is the US, 600 kilograms compared to our uh, 100 and well, food plus feed comes to 161 kilograms in India, actually. Uh, another eight kilograms or so is uh, processed and so forth. So it is such a basic fallacy. And there's been a huge literature in the Food and Agriculture Organization for 25 years about how when countries develop, uh, as, uh, populations get richer, actually the cereal consumption goes up and it goes up very fast because the coefficient of feed, you know, to produce one kilo of beef in the US, you require eight kilograms of grain. The eight kilograms of grain will give you, each kilogram gives you about 3,400 calories. Multiply by eight. It will give you about 27,000 calories, eight kilograms kilocalories of energy from eight kilograms of grain if it is directly consumed. If it is converted into a kilogram of beef by being fed, as it is done in the US as feed, that one kilogram of green, the beef will give you 1,500 kilograms. So compare 28,000 with 1,500. So the point is that rich populations are sucking away grain. You know, within our own countries, the rich elites, we don't consume beef that much in India. We consume poultry products. But even poultry products, you know, one kilogram of poultry will take two to 2.5 kilograms of uh, grain to produce under the modern conditions where poultry doesn't uh, roam loose, but they're in battery hens. Mm -hmm. Okay. We have to know, know these facts, these basic facts, because before you shoot off silly theories, you know, not you personally. <laughs> I mean, these people who are trying to justify the falling uh, thing in Pakistan, before they shoot off their silly theories, they have to do their homework. They have to know basic facts. So one kilogram of chicken, as I was saying, requires about two to two and a half kilograms of grain to produce, of wheat grain, all right? Now, do the multiplication, I told you, 3,400 kilogram uh, uh, calories from one kilogram grain. So two kilograms of grain mean directly consume, you get 6,800 kilocalories. A school child can do the multiplication of 3,400 multiplied by two. And what do you get from one kilogram of chicken? 
you get 1400 calories. So that's why the poor can't, the poor can't afford chicken. They get cheap calories from mainly from grain. And when a rich person consumes a kilo of chicken, he or she is drawing away the equivalent of what a poor person would consume over a period of a whole week uh, or even a, uh, two weeks. I don't know, you work out the per capita calorie intake uh, of 6,800. If it is divided by 1,200, what do you get? You get almost uh, six days consumption for a poor person is consumed just in one meal, you know, uh, by a rich person. So you have this phenomenal, as it were, inequality even in the sphere of consumption. You look at the diets of the poor compared to the diets of the wealthy. You look at the global diet, what the average US or the German consumer consumes. Look at his uh, animal food intake. It is like 30 to 40 times that of a poor peasant in Bangladesh or India. And these people are talking about, you know, you don't have to bother about per capita uh, food rate consumption going down in India. Which, which world do they live in? I don't think they live on this world at all. I don't think they know anything. They haven't done the basic homework. And I'm saying this about people who are internationally known and who have been committing these basic fallacies. You know. Now, when you point out a fallacy, if there is a sound basis for your argument, you expect a serious academic to take it seriously. If a person is not a serious academic, what will they do? They will laugh it away. They will try and not take notice of it. Now, not taking notice of it and then actually trying to laugh it away by saying, oh, you don't know, you haven't done your homework to the person who's pointing out the mistake, is itself a fallacy which Aristotle had called the fallacy of an argument ad hominem. Mm. What is an ad hominem argument? So I'm, as it were, questioning you as a person, your intelligence as a person. I'm not addressing the actual argument. That is a fallacy of an ad hominem argument when you don't address the actual argument, but you cast doubts on the person who's making the argument. That's itself is a fallacy. You see, Aristotle is very interesting. And all these fallacies and additional ones you can find in Copy's book on logic. There's a standard textbook for people studying logic. Unfortunately, students of economics are never taught logic. They're only taught mathematics, which is only a part of logic. It's, the mathematics is the part of logic, which is formal logic, but they're never taught applied logic. So that is what uh, these particular gentlemen did to me. Instead of addressing my argument, which was couched in very academic terms as a fallacy in their argument, they said, you are a calorie fundamentalist. You know, that is how they headed their reply to me. Calorie fundamentalism. Right. And I, I think that that, um, that debate actually remains unfinished in, in, in a way. It, it remains unresolved. But I want to pick up on, on one thing that you also mentioned that I think is really important that you're raising in these debates. Um, the issue is that poor people tend to get most of their food in the form of cereals. 
and it's really richer people who can afford protein in the form of meat, especially chicken. So we really need to understand this inequality and that that the meat then needs to be factored into indirect cereal consumption because it takes a lot more grain to produce chicken than uh, just directly consuming it, which means that on the whole, uh, if you're producing all that chicken for rich people, then there's even less grain available for poor people. So we can't assume that for most people uh, in, in our countries, a declining per capita cereal consumption means necessarily that they're increasing other forms of food, especially for, for poor people. So poor people's uh, consumption actually gets deflated here, they're, and their income then is also deflated. And on the other hand, you're, you're talking about rich people, their consumption is getting inflated. So the, the discussion of poverty then is also a discussion of inequality. Right, right. You see, um, the point is that this income deflation actually manifests itself um, in a reduction in food consumption, partly because also the access to uh, public health care has been very drastically reduced, as has been access to education, affordable education. So it's a many-pronged attack. It is not just, an, uh, the, that is the whole set of neoliberal policies, is not simply an attack on food security, which I've been discussing at some length. It is also an attack through privatization on the actual affordable access to basic uh, needs like uh, uh, med medical facilities and to education. Now, the poor don't simply, are not, don't, it's not, that they simply want food to eat. That is a basic need. But there are other basic needs. There is shelter. I don't have to spell it out. Mm. There is affordable uh, medical care. If you fall ill, you don't want to have to uh, sell whatever possessions uh, you have to pay enormous sums of money for hospitalization. There is the question of access of your children to affordable education. You don't want to be edged out completely from the educational system because the fees are so high. So in every sphere uh, of which the food dimension, of course, is the most glaring and the most striking, but in every other sphere of basic needs also, neoliberalism has constituted an attack on the basic requirements and living standards of, I would say, like 80% of our population. Whereas on the other hand, the top 5 to 10% of the population has benefited enormously because there has been the availability of a range of goods from advanced countries, their standards of living now are global living standards. You know, there's hardly any difference between a rich person, the way he lives or she lives today in a city in India, a very rich person, and that would include everybody in the top 5%. That's a very large number in our country. You know, the top 5% uh, would be like uh, more than 60 million people in this country, which is larger than most European populations of individual European countries. There's no difference between their living standard and uh, the living standard of a well-to-do person in the United States or Germany. In fact, I would say that people are better off in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and so on, because services are so cheap here. There's such a huge mass of unemployed, underemployed, low-income people desperately trying to make a living, that they give you, give you services for a pittance. So you can get people to cook for you and look after your personal needs and do your gardening and clean your house, which even fairly well-to-do middle-class people in the United States cannot do. 
you see. So the inequalities are not only very great, but they have increased very greatly too. And that is the sad thing, because when I look at the studies on inequality, uh, which were made uh, for the 1980s in India. Now, we did not have a phenomenal reduction in inequality, but we, it was an unequal society, but we did not have a rise in inequality either. But in the last 25 years, since the mid-1990s in particular, there's been a phenomenal growth in inequality, whether you measure it in terms of basic things like access to food, healthcare, and so on, or whether you measure it in terms of you know, asset inequality. Uh, inequality of land ownership has increased greatly. Inequality of financial assets ownership has increased greatly. So it's in a very, very sad situation. And uh, of course, I have been arguing that if we look at the question of poverty, because you have defined poverty in terms of a very basic variable, nutrition, there is absolute immiserization for the bulk of the population. Absolute poverty has actually increased rather than decreasing, which is a very strong statement. But I believe that is true. This has <laughs> e even broader implications because right now, so there's this narrative on the part of uh, Bill Gates, the IMF, World Bank, that at least prior to the pandemic situation, world poverty had been going down. And you can say by any measure of poverty that you use, whether it's the extreme poverty measure, in which case we have a dramatic decline in poverty, or even if you raise the poverty line to say $7, then you still have a, a, a moderate decline in poverty. But it's, it's strange to me because I know from Pakistan at least these two things. First is that over the last several years, purchasing power has declined. And second, calorie intake has declined, even though per capita incomes have increased. And so what does that mean for any narrative of, of poverty reduction? Yeah, well, you know, I have been writing on this whole question of incorrect measurement of poverty by all national governments, including our planning commission and by the World Bank for a very long time. I mean, nobody bothered about poverty estimates in India before the neoliberal policies really started, because it was only with the inception of neoliberal policies and particularly from 1997, that academic poverty estimates or planning, uh, policy, uh, uh, planning commission poverty estimates had an important practical empirical bearing. Because why? Because under the pressure of foreign governments and the World Bank, IMF and so on, WTO, we went into targeting our food subsidy. That is, the population was targeted into above poverty line and below poverty line. As long as you didn't have targeting what the poverty line was that some academics were talking about, as long as you were following actual policies which were, which were fiscally expansionary, it didn't matter what the poverty line was. After that, it became very important how you measured poverty. And that was the basis for whether you gave affordable food grains from your public distribution system and whether, whether you excluded people saying, no, you're not poor on the basis of a false estimation of poverty. So you see, that is the reason that a number of civil society organizations and uh, people in academia became very concerned about how exactly are you measuring it? It no longer remains something which was unimportant and only in the academic sphere. So um, you see, um, precisely what you say, I started noticing 
uh, in India that the per capita calorie intake was going down all through the 1990s. And of course, unemployment was going up. And since uh, the calculation of poverty is based on a nutrition norm, which is actually anchored to a precise calorie norm, you know, and that is true all the world over. I said, how can this be? How can you have a situation where the Planning Commission in India and Angus Deaton and others are talking about poverty in India going down? How is the World Bank talking about Asian poverty going down? In the Indian case, I know, because we have the National Sample Survey since 1951 or so, which every five years gives you a large sample, very systematic data with the same statistical method, the same sampling frame, carried on over now for almost 70 years, um, which gives you not only the consumption expenditure on goods and services of consumers ranked by their levels of expenditure from the poorest to the richest. It also gives you the uh, associated, because you know they collect data on the physical amount of food items that people actually buy in a month or in a week, depending on the reference period being used. Then they apply prices to get the value. But from the physical amounts of the food, you can get the calorie and protein and fat intakes. So the National Sample Survey has also been giving very precise data every five year large samples. In between, they have smaller samples also. But we talk about the large samples. Very precise data on what has been happening to per capita energy intake, protein intake, and fat intake, okay, by different levels of spending for a sample which covers at least a million persons or more. So it's one of the most reliable databases in the world. So this is showing a decline in both calorie intake and uh, protein intake. And on the other hand, the Planning Commission was saying that poverty is going down. The World Bank and uh, people working on Indian poverty, like Angus Deaton was saying, is going down. So that is when, actually from around uh, the year 2002-03 or so, I started seriously going through the basic data. Because I said, there must be something wrong with how they're measuring poverty. There must be something wrong with it. They can't possibly reach the conclusion because we all know that uh, how you measure poverty, the poverty line is supposed to be based, the definition of a poverty line, which is what determines whether you're above it or below it and determines what proportion is poor. Definition of a poverty line is what is that particular monthly total expenditure on all goods and services whose food expenditure part allows a person in India to meet a calorie norm of 2,400 in rural India and 2,100 in urban India. Okay, This is the official definition of the poverty line. It is not simply the expenditure on food alone, but that particular total per capita monthly expenditure whose food expenditure part will allow you to meet this energy norm. Precise definition. Same definition, similar definitions have been followed in China. The calorie norm may be different. In China, it was uh, 2,150 calories for rural areas. And in India, the actual norm which was applied was not 2,400 for villages, but 2,200. But everywhere is the same. You have family budget service 
in China as well, in other countries as well. And from looking at the results of those surveys, you find out, you pinpoint that particular level of expenditure, actually observed expenditure, at which a person in a family could attain this energy intake level. Okay, so that is the definition. Now, I found that this definition was actually applied in India, and it is the same in China later on in time, and in other countries, only once. That is in a base year. In India, the base year is 1973. How far back in time is that? It is getting on now to 50 years. That is back in time, more than 40 years back. In China, the base year was 10 years later in India, but still almost 40 years back in time. So in the base year, there was a correct calculation of poverty percentage by applying this particular definition. But in every subsequent estimate, this definition was abandoned. They never applied this definition again. Even though in the case of India, every five years, you have the nutritional intake data. Every five years, you could determine what is the, let us say I'm looking after 1973, I'm looking at 1978. I can determine for 1978 from the data, what is the spending level per capita per month at which a person in rural India or urban India could access the calorie norm. All right. Similarly, for 1983, 1988, every five years, right up to the latest. I can look at the nutritional intake data and find that out. But they never did that. What they actually did was simply take the base year poverty line. Okay, the base year top poverty line for village India in 1973 was 50 rupees. All right. And just a sec. 50, sure. Was it 50 rupees uh, per month? Um, yes, 50 rupees per month. All right. So they simply applied then a price index to bring it to more recent period. Okay. I'm not giving you a simply descriptive, uh, vague idea of why the poverty estimation method followed is wrong. I'm giving you a very precise idea. Mm. Now, this is a wrong procedure. You cannot start with one definition and then shift to another definition. Because that is what all governments and the World Bank have been doing. Okay, this is a again a fallacy, a logical fallacy, a fallacy of equivocation. You give start with one definition, then without telling people that you have changed the definition, you shift to another definition. Now, why should applying a price index not give you? If I if I don't apply the price index, but I look at what the actual contemporary and by contemporary I mean the 2011 data for which I have nutritional intake data for India from the National Sample Survey. The official poverty percentage for India is less than a quarter. The poverty percentage I get by applying, because the poverty line that is applied is simply the price update, the price index poverty line from 1973. 50 rupees to which an index of prices is applied. Consumer prices, index of consumer. Okay, am I making myself clear? That is the official procedure. If I follow the original definition and I look at the 2011 nutritional intake data, which are there from the NSS, 
and the spending level of people on food and other goods, I find that the poverty line that I get is actually more than three times the official poverty line. And the poverty percentage is not less than a quarter. The poverty percentage is 67% in rural India and about the same in urban India, one, one percentage point higher in urban India. So wow. that is the correct way of measuring where you keep the same definition. Now, at the official poverty line, and I have calculated this for every five yearly sample. It has taken me months to do it. I have myself computed in on Microsoft Excel almost 1,000 graphs from which I've read the calculations. I have not trusted any research, research assistant because when I see what these qualified people with PhDs have been doing with the data, in the World Bank, in planning commissions in Pakistan, India, every other developing country, I am shocked and horrified that this simple logical thing does not strike them. That to change the definition means that you're committing a logical mistake. And what is the implication? The implication is that the price indexed poverty line you're getting is a gross underestimate. And at that poverty line, for example, for rural India, uh, I've been critiquing the planning commission from for 20 years almost now. And in India, the government was forced to set up, not because of me alone, because my critique was taken up by lawyers. They approached the Supreme Court and so on. Um, and so uh, new committees were set up to suggest new poverty lines to update the poverty. Even at the updated poverty line, they're doing the same thing. They're still simply indexing by a price index and not applying the original definition. In other words, the nutrition norm has dropped out of the picture completely for 40 years. It has dropped out of the picture for the estimators for 30 years in China. It has dropped out of the picture in Pakistan with the result that the poverty line Local currency poverty, daily poverty line in India today will buy only one bottle, one 1 1.5 liter bottle of water. That is all, 50 rupees. And of course, now we are getting advertisements on the TV. Pepsi has reduced its price. So one and a half liter bottle of Pepsi you can get for by, with the daily poverty line. And this is the poverty line. I don't know what it is in uh, Pakistan. You can calculate it. You'll find some, something similar. And this is the poverty line, price index poverty line, at which people are supposed to meet their daily requirements, not only of food, but their transport, their daily medical expenses, uh, if their uh, uh, children, their educational expenses, their rent, if they're in rented accommodation, everything. I mean, it, it's not just a joke, it's, it's just a tragedy that grown men and women with, well, it's mostly men, I haven't seen women producing such absurd figures, that grown men with PhDs can produce these figures and say this is a poverty line. And every country is doing this. The calorie intake, I did the calculation not only for all India, I did the calculation for every state in India. 
and that is like doing a you know calculation for every european every african country mm. almost like because there are now uh, so many states bifurcation as well so in some states in india this price indexed poverty line now allows a calorie intake which is around 1200 to 1300 kilocalories a day it is down by 1000 calories from the nutrition law now doctors tell us that a person who is lying on a bed all day doing no work at all just to keep the metabolism going needs 1000 to 1100 kilocalories of energy just to stay alive without doing any work and this at our current poverty line current means 2011 all right about 10 years ago almost now at the at that poverty line a person could only get 1200 to 1300 kilocalories at that poverty line and as as you've pointed out the issue is not just with the measurement of poverty in india but even china and places like that so if you have a poverty line that is set low through a mismeasurement that can allow you to then inflate the number of people who are above that poverty line and th- those are the figures that then the international organizations like the world bank are relying on the estimates that are being done by by national governments and then they can they can take these estimates and they can then construct that kind of narrative that we were talking about 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 declining global poverty and that kind of stuff now you know maybe maybe as a way to conclude we can talk about these kinds of narratives on a global scale that don't neatly line up with what people may be experiencing on the ground and and how do you then speak to students whether they're students of economics or other disciplines who are looking at these kinds of things and and are looking at these narratives and uh, you know how should they approach these things critically so this is again part of the ideological offensive launched by the world bank the imf and you know you taking on the world bank and the imf is not easy because they will bombard you with enormous amounts of econometrics and very impressive looking page after page of equations they will try to bamboozle you by saying that look you know we have highly qualified people who are doing this who are you to question what we are doing but never get never lose hold of your common sense mm-hmm. never lose hold of it and i will say this to the youngest student of your class never never refrain from asking a simple common sense question because it's so important uh, we who belong to the privileged classes cannot simply sit back and uh, allow when we understand that the methods uh, of computation of poverty the particular economic policies ha- have been having such actually adverse consequences for the mass of a population which is not in a position to understand what is or analyze what is happening to them they are victims they are the people who are experiencing all this deprivation but they themselves are not in a position they have not had the kind of privileged upbringing or educational exposure that we have had to analyze what is happening to them what is the reason for it and this is very important also to convey it Uh, to people who are uh, suffering from these policies 
Because, you know, in such a situation where poverty is increasing, unemployment is increasing, this also provides a very fertile breeding ground for demagogic uh, political leaders to come in and point these people who are losing out in a wrong direction and say that, look, all your problems are because immigrants are coming and taking your jobs away. Your problems are because the minorities in your own society are multiplying faster than you are. They are talking, you're taking your jobs away and so on and so forth. It's very easy for, you know, uh, political leaders with this kind of mephitic uh, and poisonous mindset to mislead ordinary people, ordinary decent people into the wrong uh, political path and to induce some kind of, you know, virtual civil war within society. If uh, those who are educated are not able to convey to normal, uh, ordinary people that, look, this is not the real reason. It is not because of immigrants, it's not because of minorities that this is happening to you. It is because there is a global system which is pretty ruthless. And actually, this is something which has to be conveyed even to ordinary, decent people in the global north as well, that they are willy-nilly, as it were, complicit in the system of exploitation of the global south, just as we as elites within our own country are complicit in the exploitation of the mass of our own people. We have to understand that. When I used to put forward my arguments and lectures, there would be somebody, there would, and somebody had written to me, some graduate student, that why can't you frame your argument in such a way that it is actually only the financial capitalists and so on who are responsible. You can't pit worker against worker and uh, the global north against the global I said, no. You have to understand that we elites within our own societies are complicit. We live on the economic surplus which is being produced by our own workers. So I'm not just blaming the global population, the global north. And you have to differentiate in the global north itself between people who are aware of what uh, the global north is doing to the global south, which is people like Jason Hickel and others who are intelligent enough to see these modes of exploitation and who are opposed to it. You know, you have to uh, you have to give the right analysis uh, regard and not kind of pander to what you think will please an ordinary consumer in the northern country. Okay, what is important is intellectual honesty and you carry through wherever your honest analysis leads you.